Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage, here in Berlin and beyond. I'm Susan Stone, and with me is Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Darbyshire. Katie, it's season five of our podcast. Oh, it's so exciting. It is. And the other exciting thing is that uh, we had a live show again. Yay, we did. Crazy. <laughs> yes. We went back to our beloved venue, Akud, and we did it outside. Yes. And it was just so gorgeous to be back with friends and fans. And Yeah, it's been kind of uh, strange. This is, yeah, the start of another season, the start of another COVID-affected season of the podcast, like yeah. everybody. And when you have a live show in this day and age, things have to be done a little differently. Here in Berlin, we have some rules to follow that make it actually pretty easy, I think, to, um, I think to so manage. Too, yeah. It's called three G's in Germany, which doesn't work so well in English. You want to <laughs> lay <doesn't>. that out. <laughs> <laughs> so there's three G's. There is geimpft. Which is vaccinated. Which means vaccinated. Genesen, which is recovered. Or getested, which is tested. So yeah, that what would it be? pretty easy to figure out. <laughs> v R T. <laughs> this just doesn't no. strip off the tongue so well. No. It's three G. Yeah. Vitter. Yeah. Um, and of course, we have three rules at the Dead Lady Show, which some of oh you may gosh. or may not know. Yeah. So the first rule is they have to have been dead for a little while, you know, about six months. We like the earth to have settled over their graves. Yes, the ladies, that is. Yes. And the, se <laughs> the second rule uh, does have to do with the ladies. They have to have identified as women while they were alive. And the third rule, three, two, one, no, no fascists. fascists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is a very important one that keeps us from celebrating people like Coco Chanel and yeah. Leni Riefenstahl. <laughs> yes, it came about because of all the people who said, I want to talk about Leni Riefenstahl. We said, we don't want you to. So. No, we don't. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly, another group of ladies that we don't usually talk about are royalty. Uh, but that is uh, different today. And um, the person we'll be hearing about was much more than your average queen. So, but first of all, I want you to introduce today's wonderful presenter, fresh from our most recent live show. I will. So it's Sharon Dodua Otu, who is a mother and a black British author and a political activist living in Berlin. She's been published widely in both English and German. She edits Witnessed, an English language book series written by black authors who have lived in Germany. Very cool. Her first novel, Ada's Raum, Ada's Realm, was published in spring 2021. It'll be available in English soonish, I believe. Oh, good. And she'll be Schröder Writer in Residence at Cambridge University for the academic year 2021-22. Highly impressive. And Sharon is also just a lovely person. You have translated her work, right? Because she's quite well known in Germany for winning, maybe her first prize here, I'm not sure, for writing a short story in German that kind of blew everybody away. Exactly. She won a big, big prize, which is kind of like uh, a televised literary talent show, uh, the Bachmann Prize, with this story that I called in English, Herr Grötrup takes a seat. 
which is it's a crazy, crazy story. And uh, actually it was published in English with another translation by two American translators called Herr Grötrup Sits Down. So a beautiful publication that we will um, share details about on the in the show notes. Wonderful. And I have to admit, I haven't read it yet, and I've been wanting to, it's sort of a decision, do I read it in German? Do I read it in English? Do I do both? Which translation? There's so many choices. All I know is there's eggs involved. There's an egg. An egg. Who plays a crucial role in this story, yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, for now, we have Sharon from the Courtyard Stage at Akud to tell us all about Nana Ya Asantewa. Oh, exciting. Good evening, everybody. Lovely to see you all. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm super excited and proud to tell you today about one of my most favorite ever people in the whole wide world who ever lived, um, possibly the, my most favorite person who ever lived, Nanaya Asantiwa. And I wanted to say why I chose her. I grew up in the UK, and as a young black woman growing up, there weren't many role models for me to aspire to to be like. So black people had Martin Luther King or Angela Davis, and in the UK context, at some point, I learned about a woman called Mary Seacole, but I wouldn't have been able to name one person from the African continent as a female leader. And I also grew up at a time where being of African descent, even amongst black British people, was considered to be uncool. So there was like comments about monkeys and things that weren't very nice. Additionally to that, my parents were very strict and had like very conservative ideas of gender roles. So although I saw many hard-working black women around me, including my own mother, I don't remember any of them being leaders or in a leading position. And then one day I heard about a West African queen who led a war against the British in pre-colonial times. So you can imagine how excited I was about that. So, you must imagine that there's a meeting of Asante men, a group of men from the um, group of people called Asante, and um, they're debating about whether or not to go to war with the British. And in this room, there's one woman, and she's quoted as having said, is it true that the bravery of the Asante is no more? I cannot believe it. It cannot be. I must say this, if you, the men of the Asante will not go forward and fight, then we will. We, the women, will. I shall call upon my fellow women. We will fight the white men. We will fight to the last of us falls in the battlefields. What an inspiring speech. So the image on the right is um, a statue in her honor in her birth town, which is called Ejisu, which is near Kumasi in present-day Ghana. The meeting I'm talking about took place in 1900. And before I go into more detail about the, how the situation arose and how the ensuing war ended, because they did go to war, I'd like to provide some context. For hundreds of years before that, Europe had been pursuing a colonial agenda on the African continent. So right at the bottom of the map, on the left-hand side, that where it's marked in red, there's a map, sorry for the podcast people, there's a map of... Um, Ghana on the left and the globe on the right, which shows approximately where Ghana is. So on the left, we see a map with the red spots 
in the shape of a castle, which is Elmina. And this was built by the Portuguese in 1482 and was the first trading post built on the Gulf of Guinea. This castle was later seized by the Dutch in 1637 and later by the British in 1872. So you see that the ownership of certain pieces of land and property was passed on between the Europeans. The current borders in Africa, by the way, were drawn up in 1884 during the so-called Congo Conference, which took place right here in Berlin. European leaders were in attendance, but not one single African leader. So you can see in the left-hand picture how this affected the Ashanti, for example. When the empire was at its peak, it was much bigger than the present-day borders, which are slightly slimmer. You can see a star which says Kumasi. Kumasi is the capital of the Asante region, and the dotted white line is where the modern Asante region is now, but of course it used to be much, much bigger. The black area marks where the Akan-speaking peoples uh, live, and the Asante used to go way beyond even those borders. The eventual destruction of self-determination even applied to the name Asante. Mostly you will hear it pronounced Ashanti, A-S-H-A-N-T-I, and spelt like that. This is the British name. In the Akan language, however, it is pronounced Asante, and that's what I'm using in this presentation. The Asante Empire emerged in the 1600s as a subgroup of the Akan-speaking people. The state was established around the city of Kumasi shortly after the first encounters with the Europeans. The Portuguese traded with the Asante, and the Asante grew stronger than their neighbors. So, what else was going on in pre-colonial West Africa? The picture, um, which you see here, depicts the city of Kumasi, which, if you remember, is the capital city of the Asante region, in the 19th century. On the left, I've quoted Thomas Bowditch. He was an English traveler and author who was sent to Kumasi in 1817 to negotiate with the Asante king at the time. Asanteheni. Apparently, it was during this time that he collected local crafts, including, for example, the oldest known surviving Adinkra cloth. The items were subsequently donated to the British Museum. I just wanted to briefly give some facts about the Asante Empire. A man called Ose Tutu became the first Asanteheni, or king of Asante, and proceeded to unify the independent village states, so those little uh, cities and towns and such all around the Asante area. That happened during the 17th century. The Asante became a powerful confederacy, and Kumasi was the capital. Gold mines became royal possessions, so in that area there was a lot of gold, and still is. Gold dust became the currency, and hence the name of the area, Gold Coast, or Costa do Uru, the Portuguese were the most important trading partners at that time. By the early 1800s, trade in enslaved people had become more important than trading gold. So in exchange for the people, the Asante received luxury items and manufactured goods, including firearms from Europeans. Constant wars were being fought at the time with neighboring groups, and this meant a steady supply of people from the people who lost the wars. But it also led to a weakening of the Confederacy as a worthy adversary of the British Empire. At this point, I wanted to make a recommendation for a brilliant novel which is set during this time. This is a novel called The Healers by a Ghanaian author, Ayikwe Ama. And it uh, beautifully captures the process of colonization from an African perspective. 
The plot focuses on the betrayal of African people by their own leadership. And what I admire most about the book is what I would call the long breath it takes. As a, it is clear from the narrative that the white men are stronger and are going to win during the lifetime of the protagonists of the book. But then there's this beautiful section, which I've quoted on the left. These two protagonists are talking. Nia Neba asks, you are saying our time is not now? And Damful answers, I'm saying that this is seed time, far from harvest time. This turns out for Yas Antiwa and Ghanaians to be prophetic, and I'll come back to this sentiment at the end of the presentation. Another piece of context I really wanted to provide before I get to the main event was that I wanted to address something which I'll call the product of their time argument, which often gets made when discussing colonial aggression and racist attitudes towards people of African descent. And it goes something like, the general understanding is at the time, people of African descent were not considered to be equal to white people, and we can't judge contemporary philosophers and writers and colonial leaders according to the standards of today. And it's a pet peeve of mine, because it's only possible to make that kind of argument because so little is known about the work of black thinkers and thinkers of color living and working at the same time as those contemporaries. So this evening, I just wanted to mention the existence of one Joseph Antenor Fiermin. He was a philosopher from Haiti, and he's best known for his book on the equality of human races, which he wrote in French, but I don't speak French. I don't want to butcher this language. Here you go. You can read it for those who can read French. And this book was published in 1885 as a rebuttal to Count Arthur de Goubineau's work, Essay on the Inequality of Human Races. Goubineau's book, published in the same year, also in French, asserted the superiority of the Aryan race and the inferiority of black people and other people of color. Fermin was marginalized at the time for his beliefs that all human races were equal. To understand the significance of the War of the Golden Stool, which was the war that was fought in 1900, after that meeting I mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, um, it's important I provide one more piece of context, what exactly the Golden Stool was. So on this image, we once again see a map of the territory of the Asante, this time at around 1700. And it was about this time that Osei Tutu, I mentioned him earlier, he became the first Asante Heni, or King of Asante. He proceeded to unify the independent village states with the support of a man called Okomfo Anochi, who was a high priest. So they fought, for example, with the Denchira, um, and expanded their territory, gained large amounts of land and power. Legend has it that in the 17th century, Okomfo Enochi, this high priest, called forth the golden stool as a symbol of the Asante throne. It fell from the sky into the lap of Osetutu, confirming his ascendancy to the throne. The other Asante leaders, or leaders around, were told that the stool housed the soul of the Asante nation, and the leaders swore allegiance to the stool, and from then on fought to defend it. So in the image on the left, we can see an artistic rendition of this symbolic event. There's a statue of a man who's reaching into the sky and grabbing the golden stool, um, and holding, I think, a knife in his other hand. Um, this statue stands in present-day Kumasi in Ghana. To this day, 
the golden stool retains its significance. Apparently, it's displayed in public every five years. The stool is made entirely of gold. It's not allowed to touch the ground, and it's considered to be so sacred that no one is allowed to sit on it. It's so sacred, it even has its own throne. And each new Asantehene is lowered and raised over the stool without being permitted to touch it. Only those in possession of the golden stool can be considered to be the legitimate rulers of the Asante. The golden stool is the most prized possession of the Asante. Over the course of Asante history, many wars were fought, some of them with the interest of expanding the confederation, as I mentioned earlier, and capturing people in order for them to be sold to the Europeans. But some wars were fought against the British. There were five such wars in total, which isn't that well known. Ya Santiwa was probably born at some time between the First and Second War. Wikipedia gives her birthday as the 17th of October, 1840, but from what I understand, there's no record of when she was born exactly, so I think that was a mistake. During each of these wars, the British gained territory and power, in part due to the superior weapons, but in part also due to the exploitation of divisions and tensions within the Asante Confederacy. The wars were by no means easy for the British. They were hard fought and many casualties on both sides were suffered. The image on, um, on this slide shows an artistic rendition of the first Anglo-Ashanti war. And this image was published in 1824, I think in a uh, British newspaper. We can see in this image that the artist makes a great effort to show how brave and strong and intimidating the British shoulders, shoulder, I can't say that word. How do you say it? Soldiers, fighters. Uh, you can see um, lots of men on this image. Look at that, the white guys are wearing really clean white trousers. I don't know how your trousers stay that clean in a war, but I think that's part of showing how easy this battle was for them. All the West African guys are kind of lying on the floor or in retreat somehow. I just want to point out that if the war had been that easy to fight, there wouldn't have needed to have been five of them in total. At some point in the 1880s, um, civil war was raging in the Asante Confederacy, and Yasantewa was appointed queen mother by her brother. He was the Ejisuheni, so there was the Ejisu, which is a neighboring uh, city of Kumasi, and he was the king of the Ejisu, a people who were also part of the Ashanti Confederacy. His name was Nana Kwasi Afrani Opesi. By the way, Nana is the title of a monarch that signifies the status of king or queen. That's why I call Nana Yasantiwa, Nana, to, as a mark of respect in this presentation. As the queen mother, it was specifically Nana Yasantiwa's role to protect the golden storm. In 1893, the Ashanti Heni, Nana Prempe I, rejected an invitation made to the Ashanti to become a British protectorate. Initially, the British didn't attack, but then, Nanaya Santewa's brother died in 1894 and her grandson became the Ejisuheni. In 1895, war broke out again. By 1896, the British had won and the then governor of the Gold Coast, William Maxwell, went to Kumasi and ordered the arrest of the Asanteheni, Nana Prempe I. At this point, a demand was made for the Golden Storm. 
Nana Prempe refused, and he was therefore banished to the Seychelles, along with other key figures from the Asante, including Nanaya Asantewa's grandson. Therefore, she became the regent of the Ejisu. So, the event which triggered the fifth and final Anglo-Asante War of 1900 was the meeting which was held in Kumasi by Sir Frederick Hodgson, governor of the Gold Coast at the time. He summoned the remaining Asante leaders and demanded that they give him the golden stool. He is quoted as saying, where is the golden stool? Why am I not sitting on the golden stool at this moment? I am the representative of the paramount power in this country. Why have you relegated me to this chair? Some rubbish chair, I guess. The British were very keen to get the golden stool. Apparently, the so-called paramount power, referred to in that quote, Queen Victoria, was very upset that it had not already been obtained. It had been attempted in the past to get hold of the stool, and the Asante had just created a replica and gave that to the British. And when the British found out, they were furious that they'd been tricked. The British understood that without the golden stool, there would be no symbol to hold together the Asante Confederacy. Apparently, however, Sir Hodgson had underestimated how outrageous his demand had been. No one sits on the golden stool. This was unheard of. So, a secret meeting of the remaining Asante leaders was called, and it was at this meeting that some of the men expressed their reluctance to go to war. Some of the men suggested that instead they beg the British to bring back their king from exile, and Nanaya Asantewa was present at that meeting, and she was furious. I'd like to play an audio file from a woman called Vanessa Dansor. She's a YouTuber who made a short video entitled The Legendary Nanaya Asantewa and the War of the Golden Stool. In the audio clip, she quotes Nanaya Asantewa both in Chvi, the original language, which I sadly don't speak, and in English translation. Ah! My dear Papa, how can a proud and brave people like the Asante sit back and look on while the white man take away your kings and chiefs and humiliate you with demand for the golden stool? The golden stool only means money to the white man, and that is why they have searched everywhere and dug everywhere for it. To the governor. So she basically said, I shall not pay one pledge one. If you chiefs are going to behave like cowards who are too frightened to fight, meaning, then exchange your loincloths with my undergarments. It was safe to say she was quite pissed off. That was exciting. <laughs> Um, yes, she was really furious. So, how did the Battle of the Golden Stool turn out? Well, Nanaya Santiwa convinced the men to fight. One of the methods she used was to call on women to go on sex strike until their husbands agreed to enlist. I think this is a popular method, yeah. She was chosen to lead the war against the British probably because of that method. Anyway, the first and only example of a woman to be given that role in Asante history. She led an army of 5,000 from her headquarters in Nejisu. She couldn't lead the army from Kumasi, which is the capital, was what was the capital, because at that time it was heavily populated by the British. 
Around 3,500 British people were trapped in the Kumasi fort without food or water for several months. They were forced to eat rats and mice. Many died of yellow fever and other horrible diseases. And after 10 months, Nanea Santiwa allowed the sick and the women who wanted to, to leave the fort. Unknown to her, a note was also smuggled out and therefore reinforcements were eventually sent to break the siege, which ended in 1901. In the end, the War of the Golden Stool caused around 1,000 casualties on the British side and around 2,000 were suffered on the Ashanti side. The image I've used in this slide is from a game that's available on Google Play. I haven't played it myself yet, but I think it's very exciting. Asantiwa, battle for the golden stool. Very good. Initially, uh, Nanaya Asantiwa wasn't captured, but eventually she, she surrendered as the British arrested her daughter. She was stripped almost naked, as we can see in the picture on the right, and forced to give up a gold waistband and surrender her chair, which was a symbol of authority of the Queen Mother of the Asante. Her final piece of resistance, even in this moment, was to spit in the face of the captain that was arresting her. Nanea Asantiwa was also sent into exile in the Seychelles where the other members of the Asante royal family were. Nanea Asantiwa died in exile in 1921. However, three years later, Nana Prempe and the other Asante people in exile were permitted to return back to West Africa, present-day Ghana. Her remains were reburied in 1924 in a ceremony which was fit for a queen. So what was Nanaya Asantiwa's legacy? One of the legacies was that a school was established in Kumasi in 1960, the Ya Asantiwa Girls Senior High School. A museum was also built in 2000 and opened in her hometown, Ejisu. Unfortunately, a fire destroyed the museum in 2004, destroying many items that were really valuable, including her original shoes and battle dress. But the British never found the Golden Storm. Eventually, it was found by accident in 1920 by some road workers, and it was kept safely and now is with the Asante and only shown in public every five years, as I mentioned earlier. One of the things that Nanaya Asante would have been really elated about was the fact that her dream came true in 1957, that the Asante did gain freedom from the British as part of the new Ghanaian Empire. There's an image um, here on the right of, well, it's a popular image used to depict Nanaya Asantiwa, and it's also the image that I carry around with me the whole time on my phone as um, the screensaver. But I recently learned, like three months ago or something, that this isn't her at all. This is a US American theater arts student posing as Nanaya Asantiwa in a bulletproof war jacket and holding a gun. So anytime you see this image, you can tell people that you heard it here. This isn't her at all. I just wanted to end by talking about the significance of this whole story for Berlin in 2021. This is a story of attempted theft. If it had been successful, no doubt the Golden Stool would have ended up in the British Museum and perhaps even sold to Germans and be residing in the recently opened Humboldt Forum. Who knows?
I mention this because of the huge number of other cultural artifacts which are in Western museums, some proud display, but many simply gathering dust in depots and cellars across Europe and the United States. The current discussions around the Benin bronzes, which are legally considered to be owned by the Stiftung Preußische Kulturbesitz, the Prussian Cultural Heritage Foundation, are one very good example. So, in summary, Ghanaians at home and in the diaspora owe a lot to Nanaya Santiwa. And this song is in her honor. I also cannot sing the song. I didn't even find the tune, but even if I had, you wouldn't want to hear me singing this. Uh, ya Santiwa, a woman who fights before cannons, you have accomplished great things, you have done well. And thinking, for example, of the current state of the restitution debates I've just alluded to, I can say, thanks to Nanaya Santiwa, we are no longer in seed time, we are now in harvest time. Thank you very much. Sharon Dadua Otu on Nana Ya Asantua. You can see some images of this remarkable woman on our website, along with links to more information about her life and legacy. And if you'd like to read our show, we have transcripts of this episode and many others available over at deadladieshow.com slash podcast. You can follow us on social media at deadladieshow and please share, rate and review the show as it helps others to find our podcast. Thanks to our friends at Akud, including the sound engineer Alonzo Bonice. And we're actually going to be back in Akud fairly soon in October. That's October 5th. And we're going to have, of course, three wonderful talks. I'll be talking about architect Zaha Hadid. Agata Lisiak will be talking about Rosa Luxemburg. And we'll have a very special lady presented in German who we don't know yet. <laughs> and uh, we'll bring most of those presentations to you on the podcast very soon. Now I have to say that The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsens and Katie Derbyshire, and the podcast is created and produced and edited by me. We'll be back next month to introduce you to another fabulous dead lady. Thank you to Florian, and thank you to Katie. Thank you, Susan. <laughs> and thank you to everyone listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Support for this episode of The Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat.